it's really difficult to feel confident because the stakes are so high. You love your kids so much. You want them to be healthy and happy. And it feels like even small decisions can have, you know, these immense consequences. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. I'm Dr. Kara Goodwin, and I'm so excited today to have Jess Gross here. Jess Gross is a New York Times journalist who often writes about parenting. Um, She was named a glamour game changer for her realistic coverage of parenting during the pandemic. And she's the author of several books, including Sad Desk Salad, Soulmates, Love Mom, and most recently, a book called Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Um, And as soon as I read this book, I knew I wanted to talk to her because this book was kind of what all of us mothers needed after the last few years. It's just so interesting and validating for us parents who have experienced a time when parenting has gone from extremely difficult to nearly impossible. Um, So Jess, thank you so much for being here. And could you please introduce yourself and tell us why you wanted to write a book on American motherhood? Sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have had a lot of the ideas for this book kicking around in my mind for really the past decade um, since I became pregnant with my older daughter, who is almost 11. I got extremely sick when I was pregnant with her. I had hyperemesis. Um, And I had to quit my job. And even though I had been reporting on how much our country does not support parents, kind of living through an example of it myself was quite galvanizing. Um, And so over the years, I had really been talking about a lot of these issues like paid leave, uh, lack of childcare, and how they affected parents Um, not just in this country, but primarily in the United States. And then, you know, the pandemic happened. And I think it was finally a moment where more people outside of just moms of young children were really talking about these issues and realizing that the way that we have constructed parenting in the United States is, um, you know, as I say in the subtitle of my book, not sustainable. Um, And you see it in the fact that fewer people are having children, Um, People are not having their ideal number of children, even when they become parents, um, because they just can't make it work. So, you know, uh, the pandemic was really this moment where I felt like, okay, we finally have the attention of more people in positions of real power to hopefully change things for a larger number of parents in the United States. Yes, yes. I mean, I definitely experienced that during the pandemic of parenting going from being very hard to seeming like how is this any how is anybody capable of this so the first chapter of your book is called how do we get here and i thought this was so interesting cuz it talks about the history of motherhood in america and obviously the the chapter was pretty long so you <laughs> i know you don't have time to get into all of it but could you highlight some of the history of parenting in america and kind of how we got to where we are and how that informs us today. Sure. So, I mean, basically forever throughout history, mothers have been supposed to be self-sacrificing and always put themselves last. And so that is just sort of, you know, historically true throughout many, many cultures. 
Um, I'm not going to say every culture, but most of them, uh, certainly Western cultures. Um, and in the early days of the United States, parenting wasn't strictly a mother's domain. There wasn't a lot of separation in households. So, you know, everybody was home all the time. There wasn't industry um, where there was this division where men were going out to work and women were staying home. Like everything was at home. Uh, and then roughly, and, and dads had a, you know, active role in raising children um, that was established. So there was sort of this idea that women were too flighty to educate their children um, certainly wow. to teach them moral values. And so fathers really took the lead on that part of parenting. Um, but parenting really just, I mean, it was barely even a word. Um, you did not pay attention to your children in the way that is happening today because everybody was on the farm and kids started having chores and work to do by the time they were, you know, three, four, but definitely by the time they were six. Um, so it wasn't this, you know, the sociological term of art today is concerted cultivation, you know, paying all this attention to kids. That just was not a thing uh, until very recently. But anyway, fast forward, the industrial revolution happens and this idea of the home as being the domestic sphere and that being women's place and the outside world and the working world be and political sphere being men's space, that idea really started to take hold. And of course, when we're talking about the domestic sphere being women's space, we are talking about white Christian women, because certainly, you know, before the Civil War, enslaved, there, you know, black women were enslaved um, and immigrant women always worked. So it was just this role of, you know, mother who is just devoted to her children and not really doing anything else was, you know, solely white Christian women, really. Um, and so we're still to this day kind of dealing with that ideal, even though obviously actually they were just new labor market numbers. Almost 80% of women between 24 and 54 are working or looking for work. Uh, it is beyond the norm for women to have paid employment, um, but we're still kind of just piling those expectations on top of the expectation that women will take the majority of responsibility for children and families. And that is not great <laughs> for a yeah. variety of reasons. But, you know, I think the big one is that it's just burning a lot of people out and, and making our lives less joyful and happy than they could possibly be. Yes. Yes. I was so struck in this book reading the history. I mean, Obviously, a lot has changed, but it's amazing how little has changed in terms of the expectations on mothers. It's like our society has changed so much. Like, why do we still have the same expectations on mothers? It really is pretty shocking. Um, so one of the things I really loved about the book is you really get into your own personal struggles with motherhood. And I think it's so important that we as mothers talk about the struggles. You know, you talk about this very difficult pregnancy Um I'm currently pregnant with my fourth child and I'm really struggling. Like it is really hard. I've got three other kids, you know, I've been nauseous and exhausted almost the whole time. And it's taken me four pregnancies to get to the point that I feel okay about be saying like, I hate pregnancy. This is terrible, you know, and it, and it doesn't mean my children are not loved and wanted because all of my kids have been very wanted and very loved. But, you know, 
it's almost like we can't complain about anything. And, and why, do, why do you think admitting that it's so hard makes us feel like we're failing somehow? And how do we get the support that we need, you know, with, uh, without feeling like when we admit that it's hard, that we are admitting that we are somehow not a good mother or not fit for motherhood? I think I really address this in the conclusion of the book where I talk about the psychological idea of ambivalence, which is that you feel all of the feelings all of the time about everything. And there's no reason that motherhood should create a situation in which people are not allowed the full breadth of humanity. No matter how much you love anything in your life, that doesn't mean you won't have conflicting feelings and you won't feel exhausted or frustrated or angry at your kids from time to time. That is just normal. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you don't love or want your kid. Um, And not allowing yourself to feel those feelings just compounds the guilt because you cannot avoid those feelings. And then you just feel guilt on top of those feelings. And so I, I don't, there's no cure. You can't say, I'm just going to be a person who is only grateful 100% of the time and loving 100% of the time because then you are a robot or a Barbie. Like that's <laughs> not. <laughs> so um, it's just really accepting that we all have lots of feel that that parenting is no different than any other relationship in your life in some ways. Um, certainly we have a lot you know, obviously I strive to reach the limits of my patience with my children. I am more patient with them than in other relationships in my life. Like, it's not like I treat my children the way I treat adult relationships in my life. I'm not saying that, but, you know, just leaving room to have all of these feelings because you cannot avoid the feelings. They are there. And in terms of talking about them, I think here's where social media has sort of warped our idea of what is acceptable and what is okay to share because on one hand, you know, there's been this tremendous flowering of honesty um, for moms and for women in general about how they feel about motherhood and being a wife and all these things. But at the same time, you can see all of this blowback and it's from strangers who don't know your context. They don't, oftentimes I'm like, do they understand humor? And that humor is a tool that people (laughs) to like exaggerate because it's like there's so many times where I'm like, this is clearly a joke. And the response on the internet is like, oh, you hate your children. It's like, no, they're blown off steam by joking around about it. So I think it's this way. I think it is more broadly acceptable to be honest about, you know, the highs and lows of parenting. It's just that social media, you get all of this context-free commentary. And so I think, you know, I have found among my friends who are parents, like just complete acceptance, honesty, love. There is no, you know, we all know that we still really love our kids and can still vent to each other about when it's hard. So um, I think overall the picture is actually quite positive in private conversations. It's just like, Everything on social media has all of this sort of intense, polarized reaction to it, um, if that makes sense. Yes, that that is so true. I'm in the parenting social media world, and I struggle with that all the time. So 
Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, these mom influencers on social media and how they um, are contributing to these, you know, unrealistic ideals we have for American mothers and what, what can we do? You know, do we need to curate our social media feed? Do we need to, you know, on social media, all of us make an effort to show more of the real sides of motherhood and like show the nuance here? Like, how can we deal with this? Because social media is here to stay. So, you know, what do we do? Um, so I think absolutely curate your feeds. If someone is not making you feel good for whatever reason, mute, unfollow. It's not that deep. Just like, don't let that, don't let them make you feel that way. I think that's a hugely good rule of thumb for all of us on every topic. Um, but you know, even though intellectually, I think most of us know at this point that social media is the highlight reel, that it is not real life, and that this is a business and a job for the people who are putting out these sort of ideal idealized images and that, you know, their toddler probably had a meltdown five minutes before the photo was taken. Um, there is still a way that we compare ourselves to these visions and we wonder, why don't I look like that? Why don't I, why am I not expressing, you know, pure joy and gratitude about my children a hundred percent of the time? Like these people appear, appear to be doing, you know, we yes. have no idea what is going on in their private lives. And so I think, and that is obviously what is most advertiser friendly, because again, it's all a business. And so I think just reminding ourselves, like, this is not real. These people, it is their job to show us the shiniest, happiest moments of their lives because they're trying to sell us whatever they're trying to sell us. Um, I think contextualizing it like that for ourselves every time we see these images is really important. So it's just sort of like media criticism, media awareness. Yes, yes. I think that's so important. But, you know, I feel like I know that and still a lot of times on social media, I feel like this irrational guilt. You know, I'm like, I know that they're just showing the highlight reel. You know, I was just watching a story on social media this morning about a mother who has four kids and is like homeschooling all of them. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, why can't I do that? Like, what's what's wrong with me that I'm like incapable of homeschooling? Because um, I wouldn't be able to. I don't have the patience. And, you know, and I'm like, I know that guilt is irrational, but I still feel it. So how do we cope with this like irrational guilt that we might feel about not living up to these standards, even when we know on some level they are unrealistic? I think just uh, we have to do the self-talk and say, this is not real. Teaching is a really hard job that yes. I personally am not trained for. And there is no reason I should be good at it. <laughs> Like, I think, <laughs> and that's obviously the extreme example that many of us experienced in the darkest days of 2020. But I think that there's so many ways in which we are all different parents to different children. And what is important to me is not important to somebody else. So I was actually, I'll give you an anecdote from my own life that I was having last night. So consciously, we did not super schedule our kids. We did not have them going to a million activities. We really chose weekends as time for rest and family time. So now my kids are seven and 11 and I have, or almost 11, my, my daughter, uh, my little one will be seven on Saturday and my older daughter Aww. will be 11 later this month. So, you know, my kids are older is what I'm trying to say. And I see friends who, you know, 
got their kids really into dance or got their kids really into softball. And I'm like, have I shortchanged my kids by not making those decisions and feeling guilty like, oh, I should have done this, that or the other thing. And you know what? I just have to remind myself that I made decisions based on values that are important to me. And they made their decisions based on values that are important to them and and maybe their kids' specific talents. And it's really hard because there's just so many things now that you could have, you know, done or spent money on and people are, you know, so involved in their kids' day-to-day. But um, that's just one example for me where I, you know, felt that little pang of like, oh, have I somehow ruined my kids' lives by not putting them in dance class? And it's like, no, obviously not. They are loved. We had lots of great family times and family activities that we couldn't have done if we, you know, were spending all day driving to a softball game, you know? So, which again, that's not to say that that there's anything wrong with driving, you know, spending the time with the softball team. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they are all valid choices that families make and not one is necessarily better than the other. And you just have to remind yourself and ask yourself, am I doing the choice that is most aligned with my personal values and my family's values, which are not the same necessarily as somebody else's values? I love that. I mean, I think it's so easy to compare. And I've definitely had that thought of like, you know, oh my gosh, this kid has been playing soccer since they were two, you know, or whatever. And it's like, my kid is behind. And, And I think it's so important to remember that like, different families, different people are, have different values and, and let that lead you. Um, so another really interesting thing in the book I found or that you said was, um, that American mothers are more likely to cite experts when asked what it means to be a good mother. And this relates to this idea of, um, of what's called scientific motherhood that you discuss in the history section, which is the idea that mothers need expert scientific advice in order to be a good, quote unquote, good mother. And so I know that we both very much value having research-backed parenting advice, but how do we take in all the the advice out there, you know, assuming that it is good advice, that it is based in actual research, but use that to make us feel empowered and to trust ourselves to make the right decision rather than feeling like the research is a mandate of like, this is what I must do in order to be a good mother. And if I go against the research, then I am not a good mother. It's honestly really hard. It is really, really hard. Um, The internet is a fire hose of conflict, sometimes conflicting opinions. And it's really difficult to feel confident because the stakes are so high You love your kids so much. You want them to be healthy and happy. And it feels like even small decisions can have, you know, these immense consequences. And I think it's just reminding yourself that usually it will not matter that much. It really, you know, there are certain things like big things to me are like wearing a seatbelt vaccination, (laughs) like general stability of household. But if you have those like big picture things, those little decisions, which seem so consequential in the moment, 
probably don't matter as much as they feel like they do. And to me, the way that I've sort of triaged the information is just having a few trusted sources and going back to them and not just sort of Googling and falling into the rabbit hole, which you can do so easily um, and getting sort of all turned around. Um, It's just, especially when my kids are little, it's easier now because, you know, they can talk to me. They can give me feedback about, you know, their lives and what is working. Um, But, you know, when my kids were really little, uh, I asked, if I had a question, I asked my pediatrician or my parents um, because I think they did an okay job. <laughs> I'm okay. Um, and that was really it. You know, I was the first one of my friends to have kids. So I didn't really have close friends um, who had been through it. So it was just mom, pediatrician. I had one book, The Mayo Clinic's Guide to Your Baby's First Year, that I would sometimes consult. Um, but that really was enough. It really was. Um, and I know that sounds maybe a little lo-fi, but um, it worked. I love that. I love limiting, like, you know, we have just so much information out there. I love the idea of kind of limiting what you take in because, and some people can take in a lot of information and kind of, you know, f- synthesize it and feel okay with it. But if if you find that you are overwhelmed by the information overload, the idea of limiting it. I think is so important. Um, Yeah. And I just knew that for myself, I would be really anxious if I, you know, every time I had a question, just did tons and tons of research about it. I just knew that it wouldn't lead me to an answer that I felt better about um, than, you know, these sources that I really trusted to give me the right information. And it's, you know, not everyone has I'm really lucky, um, and I want to be clear about that, that, you know, I have a good relationship with my parents, and I really trust their advice, and, you know, I had a pediatrician that I, who was responsive and that I also trusted, so, you know, I'm, I don't mean to suggest that it is easy to find these sources of advice that are um, you feel really confident in, but um, it was, you know, something that really worked for me. Yeah, I think that's so important, just being aware of how you respond to different sources of information, you know, whether it's like social media or a parenting blog or even like a friend who you talk to who like if they if their advice is making you feel bad and making you feel more anxious and less empowered that you can limit that you know you can limit that in your life and and have some control over what you take in and what you don't so clearly you know reading your book I was just thinking, you know, there are so many policy changes we need, you know, particularly in the U.S. to make a motherhood sustainable. But how do we advocate for change? You know, I feel like it's really hard not to feel defeated when year after year it feels like nothing really seems to change. You know, I'm always like, this is going to be the year that we finally get paid maternity leave and doesn't happen. And, and how, so how do we advocate for change and how do we, you know, keep going when nothing seems to be changing? Well, I think first of all, um, the wins that are happening all the time need to get more attention. So for example, um, since the book came out, another state has passed paid parental leave. I am blanking on which state it was, but, um, I had to edit the book twice, um, and add, two states that were that passed paid parental leave while I was writing it. And then yet another state has passed it since the book came out. 
So that's really just true. in the past three years that three more states have passed paid parental leave. That's huge. And it's not going to make the front page of any newspaper, but it is happening. So I think just the idea that nothing is changing is not true. Um, and I think, you know, there are more conversations and more energy around reforming child care than at any time since I have been reporting. I mean, it's, it, we have to recognize that change is really, really slow. Um, legislative change in particular is quite slow. Um, and I think, you know, I talk to people all the time who have made changes in their private employers and have really like worked so hard and banded together with their coworkers to advocate. I think workers have uh, an unusual amount of power in this moment because it's such a tight labor market. It doesn't mean that we will retain that <laughs> that power, yeah. but like, you know, you're seeing all these strikes happen. It does, it, it you know, Organized labor is is on the rise after unprecedented decades of you know being on the wane. We're we're seeing some changes happen there, and so I think it's it's paying more attention to the wins. But also, you know, I do not agree with a single thing that Moms for Liberty is doing. But damned if they are not organized and getting a ton of attention. So if we can see. Yeah. People are doing it. It is possible. Why can't we do it for something that is I actually agree with? You know, like they're showing that it is possible to get fired up and organized around something. Um, I would be in a different role if I knew how to get people organized. <laughs> I'm not an organizer. I'm a journalist. Um, but clearly it can happen. I don't, I wish I knew how to get progressive people as fired up and centralized as as that group of conservative moms seems to be. But, you know, it's in a perverse way sort of inspiring because it's like, okay, if they can do it, then why can't we do it? Yes. Yeah, so I I totally agree. Yeah. The it, it is encouraging to see that there are changes. You know, I just saw, was it last week that the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was passed, which gives pregnant workers in the workplace some, you know, basic accommodations. Um, and it was really interesting because I posted on it and everybody in the U.S. was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. This is such good news. And everybody in Europe was like, what? I like, know. you don't have these <laughs> basic accommodations. Like, are you serious? This is 2023 and we're still talking about you're allowing pregnant women a chance to have a drink of water if they need it. Um, so um, it, it really is shocking kind of where our country is versus other countries, but there, ha there is progress. And I think it's important to not be so negative and to think about that there are changes happening. In the meantime, so we can advocate for change. We can try to organize around the, um, you know, the topics that we care about and we want to see change but what, what can we do in the meantime to like, how do we operate in this unfair world, this world that seems to be kind of stacked against mothers? And how do we get the support that we need? You know, I think about this a lot without perpetuating the stereotype that mothers are less capable. You know, how do we say, you know, I'm stressed this week because I have sick kids without making it seem that mothers aren't as valuable of workers as people who aren't mothers I think all we can do is 
Okay. So, I mean, in the book, I talk about how there's sort of three levels of work to be done. There's interpersonal. So, you know, asking for help when you need help in your personal life, making sure your partner is a real partner. Um, My mom, who is a retired shrink, always says the most important decision you will make in your life is who you marry. So (laughs) um, just really having your partner needs to be in your corner um, and wanting to make the family unit function in the best way possible. So, you know, asking for help from your partner when you need it, um, asking for help from family and friends when you need it and not feeling ashamed about that because I think there is so much shame in, you know, admitting that you can't do everything yourself. Then there's the political change, which we talked about. And there's, you know, changes at work. And I really am a big advocate in making flexible work for everyone because when it is earmarked as just a perk for moms, that is when um, resentment happens. And that is when people see moms as some other different category of worker that is less capable and they're, you know, always getting perks and not working as hard as everybody else. So I think we need to um, take this away from being a a parent issue and make it into a caregiver issue because everyone, nearly everyone who works is going to have to do some kind of caregiving in their life, whether it is of an elderly family member, of a spouse, um, you know, of themselves. Uh, People's health is not 100% amazing 100% of the time. So I think just sort of trying to pressure um, businesses to to have a little bit more grace and flexibility for everybody um, in terms of sick leave and in terms of caregiving leave um, is is a way that we do not continue to marginalize working mothers. I, I love that. I love the idea of like, this is not just a mother's issue. This is a human being issue that we exactly. all need flexibility for life outside of work. More specifically, what do you think about, is it better to kind of like hide some of our, as you know, as mothers, to hide some of our pregnancy, our child care related issues that we experience? Or is it better to just be transparent about it and ask for the support we need? You know, I've, I've wondered, you know, does it make, you know, particularly if I'm interacting with men, does it make them look down on me when I say, I can't do such and such because I'm having childcare issues, you know, or is it better for us to be transparent that like this is real life and, you know, especially if you're, you know, higher level in your field, would it be better to kind of show that side that like this is real life, I have other things in my life. Is it better to be transparent or is it better to hide that in in terms of putting up a good face. I mean, I think that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) unfortunately, my answer is going to be totally unsatisfying, which is I think it is really such a case by case basis because the culture of each company is so different. And there are certainly company cultures where it would just totally ruin your reputation for saying that. And especially if you are not particularly high up, like why I'm not going to advise someone to risk their future career um, to make a statement because that's just not practical. But I do think the more power that you have uh, in a a company of any kind, um, the more 
it makes sense for you to be really transparent about what you're doing to sort of set an example, especially if you are in the, an executive. Um, and then you really have the power to change policy, to set an example, to show the people under you what is acceptable behavior, because they really do. Everybody takes cues from the people at the top. And I see this with men as well. So, you know, there's a lot of law firms and finance firms that have paternity leave on the books, like a month of paternity leave, and almost no one takes it because they know that they're going to be punished. And so in yeah. those circumstances, um, men who are really high up in those companies need to take the full paternity leave because otherwise the people under them are never going to do it because they will see, oh, well, if I want to be promoted, if I want to be considered for top jobs, you know, well, they're not taking the full leave. Why would I do that? So, you know, I think that there's really a lot of places where people who have more power in organizations can set an example. But again, the culture of each workplace is so sui generis and the amount of, you know, is it a mom and pop? Is it corporate? Like there's just so much different kind of behavior that um, is acceptable depending on where you are and what part of the country you're in and what the expectations are that um, I don't like giving kind of blanket advice without knowing the particulars, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. And I was thinking that was what the answer would be, that it might depend on where you are. And I think this idea that it's very important if you are higher up to set that example is so important because people who are, you know, on a lower level in their field may not have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in general, I think, you know, if you are lower level, I am always in the sort of camp of is, you know, do what you need to do and do what you need to do to hide that you're doing it if that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and as long as you're meeting your deadlines, um, you want to be present in your children's life. Um, and so if that means doing some, you know, uh, creative business with your Google calendar to make it seem like you maybe are one place when you're actually at your kid's softball game, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's so true. You know, if you're meeting your deadlines, if you are, you know, meeting the expectations that you need to, that you can make, if, if it's possible in your situation to make flexibility where you can. Yeah. Um, so you end the book, you know, a lot of this is, it, it's very validating, but it also feel, can make us feel hopeless, but you end the book with talking about a lot of hope. And I think that was really helpful. Like all the amazing things that mothers have accomplished, even when things feel stacked against them. Um, when I, I was working as a part-time psychologist after having my first, and I remember feeling like I was not a very great employee between like pumping and childcare issues. And, and at the end of my appointment, my supervisor told me that I had seen more patients as a part-time psychologist than two full-time psychologists combined. Oh and God. it just made me realize that like working mothers can do anything. <laughs> and like, you know, we're the, <laughs> I, I truly believe that working mothers are like the most efficient people on earth because, you know, I would get in there and I was not messing around. I was like getting things done and, um, and still, you know, not working long hours, spending a lot of time with my baby. And so, uh, you know, after talking to all the mothers that you have for this book, what inspiration can you give us to overcome the challenges of being a mother? And like, 
what, what is like the positive side of this? The positive side is that, you know, the really hardest years, those years when your kids are so little, they really are finite. They feel so hard when you're going through them, um, even though they're also filled with so much joy. But like everything really is a phase, you know, <laughs> you think about that all the time. Um, and so, you know, again, now that my kids are older, there's so much, there's just more room to do things. And it feels like those years, I mean, all the cliches about those years, I think are often true. You know, the days are long and the years are short. Like that really is true. Um, and so just knowing that there is always this light at the end of the tunnel. And I think also knowing that you can admit that it is hard, that it's, totally normal and most everyone agrees with you and it's not some sort of personal failing um you know it is really difficult and especially if you do not live near family um that is such a huge thing that i think we don't talk about enough throughout the history of the world and i wrote a column about this in the like darkest days of 2020 again you know, people are not meant to raise children just as isolated nuclear families or as single parents. People are meant to um, raise children with tons of other adults and other, you know, people in the community to help watch the children. That is how children have always been raised. So it is a historical and, you know, unusual to expect that even just two people can provide everything that children need. And so just recognizing that it's not only okay to ask for help, it's, you know, the way that children have always been raised by many, many adults, not just the ones who are their biological parents. Um, and so I think recognizing that and, and, and trying to get the help where you can is really important. And, you know, I think if anything, the past couple of years have taught us that that we can't do this by ourselves and that it is not normal to ask people to do it by themselves. Yes. I, I cannot, personally cannot hear that enough. You know, that it is not, it is an unrealistic expectation to expect any, you know, even if you have two fully involved parents to do this on your own, much less if you are a single parent or you're doing most of it on your own, that that's unrealistic and that, you know, it is, it's supposed to be hard and that we do need to reach out for help. You know, I think that just cannot be said enough. Um, so I would love to know your response to, I know you get trolls like this. So I'd love to know what you say because I've gotten trolls like this before too. So, you know, if, what do you say to the people who say, well, if motherhood is so hard, then, you know, why did you do it? You chose this. Why did you do it? Why, so why is it that everybody except for mothers has a right to complain? So I would love to hear your, your response to these trolls. I mean, honestly, I just don't even respond to them anymore. Because it's like, <laughs> what's the point? They don't, you don't know me. You don't know my life. I also think it's actually really a cultural thing. I'm Jewish and Jews just like complain. It's culturally more, <laughs> it is culturally normative to complain. That is our love language. It is how we like, and so I'm always like, I just don't even understand. Like we complain about everything all the time. I know that's stereotypical, but it's like, I think that there are cultures where there's just, I, I, I really do feel like, what culture are you from where you don't complain about this? <laughs> 
thing. So I'm just like, it's fine. We're not speaking the same language and that's okay. You don't get me. You don't get, you don't joke around to blow off steam. Like I, it's just, it's fine. We don't need to understand each other. I respect you. Keep it moving. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my response is usually, you know, I, I do think there are people that don't really need a response because you're not going to change their mind anyway. But my response is usually something along the lines of, you know, everybody complains about their job, you know, or I I would say almost 99.9% of people complain about their job at some point. And it's like, it doesn't mean you don't like it. It doesn't mean you want to quit. It's just like, we're, you're allowed to complain about something that you do that is, uh, you know, objectively hard. And, and it doesn't mean that it, you wish you hadn't chose it or this isn't something that you want. Well, I think it just all goes back to this fantasy that should be effortless because it's quote unquote natural. It is a woman's natural role to be a mother. So if it requires effort for you or you don't love it 100% of the time, there is something aberrant or unnatural about you, which, you know, again, we don't even have time to unpack everything that is wrong with that. Yeah that group of assumptions. Um, but when you realize that that is sometimes where it's coming from, you can just be like, well, I just don't agree with that. So, you know, we don't agree and that's okay. Yes. I think that's such a common experience, especially in early motherhood of like, you know, having an infant is so hard. And it's like, when you have those feelings or you admit like, this is hard, it's like, wait, am I not fit to be a mother? Is this not am I not maternal? Am I, is this not coming naturally to me when like the truth is, and we need to talk about more that like everybody struggles with a newborn, you know, I love babies so much. Like I'm such a baby person. And I think the newborn stage is so hard. You know, it's like, it's, everybody feels this way. It doesn't mean that you're any less maternal, any less fit for mother. I mean, in that new motherhood period, it is just sleep deprivation. I mean, they yeah. literally use <laughs> sleep, sleep deprivation, deprivation to torture yeah. people. You're just very <laughs> tired. I think about that all the time. So I actually also love it. I hate being pregnant. I love babies. I've, I absolutely love infants. My Both my girls were like the easiest, most delightful babies. And I, you know, um, and I think there's also like what I talk to, you know, when I interview people or, you know, just talk to people in my personal life. Um, I, I think that different people struggle with different stages. So I was talking to someone, I love the baby stage. I struggle with the toddler stage. So between one and two was very hard for me, um, yeah. just cause they're so irrational. Um, and then <laughs> I actually really like three-year-olds. Like it's very, um, and, and someone else was saying, oh no, I love toddlers. Like it's very much what work, what is your personality and what you like about those moments. And that doesn't mean you can't get through those moments that are more challenging, but you know, everybody sort of experiences different experiences it differently. That, that is so true. Yeah. I've talked about that with my friends where, cause I'm such like a baby person and they're like, oh, I could, you know, some of my friends are like, I don't like the baby stage, but I love the toddler stage. And and yeah, it goes back to what you're saying that like different people are different. It doesn't mean you're not as good of a parent. It just means that you're different and you're experiencing this differently. I think it's also realizing, you know, even on the hardest days with my kids, when it's just like someone's always melting down or, you know, a colic, the baby's colic, you don't know what's wrong. Like, you know, there's 
always moments of just complete hilarity. I find like <laughs> someone does something ridiculous and funny. Um, it leavens even the most difficult days. And I just do without being sort of toxically positive or Pollyannish about it. I do try to always hold on to those moments. Um, so that, that helps me too. I know that's sort of corny, but yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of hilarious moments in parenting. And when you can kind of find those moments, like that helps you deal with how hard the day to day is. To end, you know, I ask a lot of my guests this, you know, this has been so incredibly interesting, but I would love to ask you, so you talk a lot about how hard it was to be a new mother and kind of what you didn't know going into motherhood. So if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a new mother, what would it be? What do you wish you know? What do you know now that you wished you had known then? Um, that losing my job and, you know, having a really difficult pregnancy was in some ways a blessing. It was horrible to go through, but it made me reassess my life and the centrality of work to my life um, in a way that I think was ultimately really healthy for me. So that's one. Um, two, um, that there is so much delight in just observing your kids grow into the people that they are. Yeah. They surprise me every day with who they're becoming, the things that come out of their mouths. Um, and it just, you, I've, I can't even write about it because there's no way to kind of get that feeling on paper. Um, just how much day to day good feeling comes from watching that develop over time. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, it's very hard to put into words, but it is, it is an amazing experience. You know, it is so hard and, you know, parenting is just such a mix of extreme emotions and, and it, and it's hard to really describe or even like w if you're trying to like warn somebody who's about to be a parent, like what exactly to expect. It's hard to, it's hard to even like put it into words until you experience it. This has been so incredibly fascinating and so incredibly validating as a parent who struggles too. And I know other parents will find it that way. Um, so can you tell my listeners where to find more information about your book or about you and, and some of the writing that you do on parenting? Oh, sure. So uh, my website is Jessica Gross, uh, G-R-O-S-E. My last name is spelled weird.com. Um, but, you know, my newsletter is with the New York Times. And if you just Google Jessica Gross New York Times, you can see everything I have written for the Times over the past five years. Um, so it's all there. And then you can buy my book, Screaming on the Inside, wherever you buy books. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Again, this has been so incredible for me. And I really appreciate you and your time. And um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization. So all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. 
If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.